Hello, I'm Andrew Suskind, and I'm a therapist and author based on the west side of Los Angeles since 1992, specializing in trauma and addictions. Welcome to my podcast, named after my recent book, It's Not About the Sex. Here we have honest conversations related to compulsive sexual behavior and trauma, all from a sexual health perspective. Our intention is to offer fresh viewpoints and practical strategies toward establishing greater intimacy and a more deeply connected life. Let's begin. Melissa McCracken is a trauma-informed substance abuse counselor currently working at Breathe Life Healing Center as a chemsex program manager. She is a seasoned chemsex counselor and has helped develop a treatment track specific to the needs of those in the LGBTQIA community. Melissa utilizes an experientially based, sex-positive, gay-affirmative approach to recovery from addictive compulsive sexual behaviors. Melissa strives to bring experience, expertise, compassion, and clarity to the counseling process in order to, to maximize outcomes and provide genuine healing and wholeness to the individuals she counsels. Melissa McCracken, she, they, CADC2, CSAT candidate, RAE virtual program manager. I'm so pleased to have Melissa McCracken here with us today. And Melissa also goes by Mel. So if you hear me referencing Mel, it's the same person. And, you know, I, I, I met Mel at a convention a few weeks back. And um, actually, she was the in, opening speaker, keynote speaker for the convention. And I was so really taken by what, what Mel had to say. I mean, just, it was fantastic to hear you and really inspired me to contact you and inspired this opportunity to rendezvous and have this conversation. So again, welcome. And I'm so glad to have you here today. Awesome. I mean, thanks so much. I am so happy that you extended the invite. Yeah. I'm a big fan. I've listened to a few of your podcasts, so I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. Well, it's my pleasure. And let's just go right into some of the questions so we can really let our listeners understand more about what you bring to the field. Uh, the first question that I have for you is, how does unresolved trauma contribute to drug use and to compulsive sex? All right. That's a big first question. Let's do it. <laughs> um, I guess when, like, I'm a, I'm a trauma-focused counselor, right? So when people come in and they're struggling with addictions or eating disorders or gambling or shopping or sex, the first thing that I want to do is, is really go to the source, like to the root of compulsive behaviors and really understand what the driving force is for them acting out in these ways and them seeking relief in various ways. And I guess it depends on how we view trauma, right? Trauma is not necessarily the story of what happens to us, but the trauma is actually what happens inside of us. And trauma has a direct impact on the nervous system. And that's going to be how I react and respond to the world. And if I'm a person that has experienced trauma and has a traumatized nervous system or a nervous nervous system is what I actually kind of like to call it, right? Because I'm always running on high. 
So when you're always running on high, relief is going to be really hard to find and peace and stillness are going to be very hard to find until we start to open up and widen our window of tolerance, right? If I have a dysregulated nervous system, I'm going to be quite intolerant of a lot of things. Uh, I'm easily upset. I might go into anger. I might go into rage. I might go into depression or anxiety. And I think all compulsive behaviors, specifically sex, that is our first learned coping skill. That was long before I ever had drugs or alcohol available to me. Sexual soothing was something that was available. And so I conditioned myself that when I was in a trauma response or when I felt intense anxiety or when I was even all the way in the lows of depression, I knew that moving towards sex was something that was going to satiate and relieve me of the stress of having a traumatized nervous system. So I really think there is a direct link and correlation in the intersection of having a traumatized nervous system and using compulsive behaviors to kind of relieve myself. I I love what you just said about it's not something that happened to us. It's something that lives within us. And I think that's really important for our listeners to understand that trauma isn't always the same for each person. It's, it's, it's such a unique experience. And it's also uh, something that relates to how the trauma was handled afterwards, mm-hmm. right? If yeah. we had to deal with it alone, which many of us did, it's, it's much more traumatizing. But if there's somebody on the other side, if there's an emotionally reliable person to hold us or to somehow help us feel like we're not alone in it, mm-hmm. it's, it's a different story, right? Yeah. I mean, most trauma survivors just want nurture and comfort. And we want a witness to say, hey, I understand this happened to you. And I'm here with you as you walk through healing towards, you know, having a regulated nervous system and no longer, I guess, acting out of alignment with who you are. Because when we seek relief through sex or drugs, like there is a part of me that is acting out of alignment, searching for that relief. Right. Sure. And I also heard you talk about sex as, as really the first soothing um, that we all experience as humans. So there, there's an idea about healthy sex. Um, I sometimes call it healthier sex, but healthy, <laughs> healthier. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what does healthy sex mean to you? And what, what, what does it mean to a person in recovery? Oh, that's a, that's a big term for me is healthy sex, healthier sex. And, um, I am trying to be a clinician, I guess, that is moving away from the term healthy, right? And really starting to move towards like self-led sexuality. When am I authentic in my sexual desires? What are my sexual values? What are my sexual principles? And in the way in which I'm acting, am I staying in alignment with those things, right? And I think as long as I I'm in alignment with myself and I'm open and I'm honest and those behaviors aren't secretive or fear-based or shame-based, right? This is all in the guise of sex positivity, right? Um, Sex positivity doesn't mean like gay sex. It (laughs) truly means, it truly means like I am in alignment with myself and what I value sexually and I'm not stepping outside of that. So Healthy sex is, is a big term. And, and I just, 
I want to move towards like self-led sexuality. Like what is me leading from openness, honesty, and authenticity? Mm. Can you say those three things again? That's beautiful. Uh, I want to move through openness, honesty, and authenticity. Uh-huh. Yeah. I love that. So just for our listeners who may or may not know the differences, because I think the term sex positivity came up um, in a way to, to help empower um, and, and, and to also put it in the frame of sexual health. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you can just say a little bit more about what sex positivity means. So sex positivity and in, in the place that I work, it's more about how I feel about my own sexuality, about my practices sexually, about my sexual value system, and about who I believe I am as a sexual being. I, I want people to go out and have a, a variety of sexual experiences across the board. But sex positivity means I'm feeling good about those experiences. They're not created from a place of relief seeking. They're not led by impulsivity. They're not led by you know compulsive action. They're really like led from my authentic sexual self. Mm-hmm. Mm. And free Thank of you. guilt and free of shame. Right. Yeah. And, and full of pleasure. All of that. Yes. <laughs> we could go on and on. We could. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So what, what would you say the therapeutic and practical methods, um, what, what, are the, what are they when, to best support those in long-term sexual recovery? So I think therapeutically to best support folks in long-term sexual recovery is really peeling back the layers of the onion. I know we, I know we hear this a lot and really taking a, a deeper walk, maybe with a counselor or a therapist into understanding where reaction and sexual response comes from. And if that's driven by having a nervous nervous system and unresolved trauma, that's definitely not going to get me the results that I want in my sexual recovery, because that might lend to more impulsive or compulsive behaviors. So I think finding a therapist maybe who is trauma focused, maybe doing some EMDR around specific events and having a group, right? A therapy group I find super useful for those in long-term sexual recovery, because as we know, a lot of addictions they lie in the shadows, they lie in wait, they lie in secretive behaviors. And then when I'm, you know, acting out of isolation or I'm acting out of secretiveness, it, it only adds and compresses shame, right? So group focused therapy, having a therapeutic container to really talk about real life experiences that I'm having out there, whether I'm having monogamous sex, polyamorous sex, or casual sex, I'm going to need a place to talk about that if I'm in sexual recovery because there's going to be a lot of feels that come up with that. So therapeutically, I think, you know, having an informed counselor or therapist and also having, you know, a group setting that I can kind of process some of those things is super useful for those in long-term sexual recovery. And then practical methods. One, if you're doing apps, put it down. (laughs) Just (laughs) get get rid of them for now. Like if, if you're, specifically in early sexual recovery, right? Because apps are just like a trance. The minute I pick up my phone, 
I'm in a trance, I'm preoccupied. A, a lot of my thought life in my day will be thinking about who has messaged me on the app, how I'm going to respond to the app. When are we going to hook up? When are we going to set it up? Does this person like me? And, you know, apps are just, um, they're just kind of destroying our ways of being intimate with one another. Mm -hmm. And there is a lack of courtship building in apps as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think specifically for people in early recovery, really the focus needs to be on cultivating non-sexual intimate relationships, right? And then we can move into sexual intimacy, but apps are not going to provide any of those tools or any of those skills around dating and courtship and, you know, just getting to know one another. It's just this instantaneous drug that's at my fingertips. And I think it's, it can be really dangerous for a person in early recovery for many reasons. Um, one of the primary is being unpredictable. Mm-hmm. When I'm opening up an app, and I'm chatting with someone, I don't know them, I've never met them. And if I decide that I, I'm going to meet up with them, I don't know what's on the other side of that door. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't know if they're, if they're a predator. I don't know if they're using drugs. I don't know the situation that I'm walking into. And sexual safety is one of the primary sexual values, right? Is it safe, sane, and consensual? And so I need to know a little bit about a person before I'm even opening up an app. So um, I think that's one of the primary things is staying away from app. That's apps that's very practical and very reasonable for someone in early recovery and um, openness and honesty about what we're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, again, all addictions, they live in secrets and they live in shame. Mm-hmm. So like having one or two people that are those confidants that is a safe, non-judgmental space for you to talk about what's going on mm-hmm. is another practical tool that we can use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I, I just to piggyback on that, I always say that it's so vital to have emotionally reliable people around you. And again, many of us maybe had a person or persons in our childhood, but many of us did not. And in recovery, really of any kind, it, it's, it's all about that um, healing attachment, right? Yes. And, and so I, I, I love that you're saying that because not only in group therapy or with a trauma-informed counselor, but across the board, who are those folks who you can truly count on and who are really, really in your corner? Yeah, I I love that you brought in like attachment injury and what that looks like. And, you know, a lot of folks that struggle with trauma and a lot of folks that struggle with addiction of many kinds, often that stems from an attachment injury and needing to feel close and secure to something. And when I can put, you know, those emotional connections and those non-sexual Um, intimate relationships as my primary, I begin to heal my attachment injury. And it's not going to be something that happens in a couple of weeks, right? This is going to be something that is going to happen over a span of time. But folks that are in in group support, or even some 12 step programs, find a real place of healing for those attachment injuries, and they find people to be trustworthy, right? Mm -hmm a lot of trauma is coming from distrust as well. 
right? And I continue to re-traumatize myself by going towards unsafe people subconsciously, just moving towards unsafe people that are unreliable and untrustworthy because I may be reenacting and repeating, you know, what was shown to me in my household. Mm -hmm. So reestablishing what it means to be a reliable person who has boundaries and, you know, who is safe that will not share what I tell them. Like those Mm -hmm. are all huge healing points in recovery. Mm -hmm. Sure. So circling back to apps as an example, um, I think this next term actually came from Patrick Carnes a long time ago, but he talked about intensity versus intimacy. And I'm wondering because apps really are about intensity, right? I mean, they're all about trying to, they're attention seeking, validation seeking, sex seeking, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if you can comment about what is intensity versus what is intimacy? A lot of addicts or people who abuse substances or, or other things um, are typically searching for that dopamine hit. Like I'm just looking for a little more dopamine to get me going. And I, I'm, I'm just in it for the charge. And the way that I like to kind of parse out the two and differentiate is really in intensity seeking is based on sensation, right? Like if I'm getting the tingling sensation in my hands or my legs get a little jumpy, like it's a, it's a very sensational experience when I'm moving towards intensity, there's a buzz that's happening. I have adrenaline going, I may be locked in the trance of preoccupation, like got some dopamine in there too. So there's really like, it's kind of like catching a buzz, right? Is the intensity seeking, but Mm. I look at intimacy in itself as something that is very sensory, not sensational, but sensory focused. Like, you know, what does someone look like? Like what, what, what are the smells that are in the air? Can I feel the touch that's happening? Are there different sounds that I'm recognizing very much like mindfulness based, right? And when I'm intimately connected with another human, um, it's not an urgent matter. It's not something I need to act on uh, right here, right now. Um, the sensation of impulsivity is, is not sitting with me. And there's a true, like, meaningful connection because I'm present, attentive, and in the room with another person. It's so interesting because I, I, I always think about the healing process really from any addictive compulsive behaviors. It is about the movement towards intimacy intimacy with self, intimacy with others, intimacy with a power greater than oneself. And it, it just makes so much sense the way you put it with the sensational versus the sensory. It, it, it's a great way of, of remembering that. You know, I also wanted to touch base mm-hmm. with you about COVID, mm-hmm. right? Even though we've pretty much mm-hmm. made it through Omicron. <laughs> Mark that one off. <laughs> we still, right. <laughs> Right. But we're still in the age of of COVID. And I'm wondering if you can talk for a moment about how it's affected those in the LGBT plus population, um, specifically with regards to lapses Mm -hmm. or relapses. Well, you know, in my work, I work primarily with a lot of gay men. And I started noticing um, like pandemic related post-traumatic stress symptoms and I was like, okay, I understand that we're all, we're all kind of at a certain level of PTSD from COVID, 
But I started noticing like arrested grief pouring out from those who had survived and loved and lost during the HIV AIDS pandemic. And, you know, for those, for that population and a lot, a lot of queer people and a lot of lesbians as well, were often caretakers and caregivers of, of a population in a community that was just decimated by the first pandemic. And I have seen, you know, it kind of be reignited with this really vague, ambiguous, you know, virus that's going out there with a lot of the stressors and trauma markers of the HIV AIDS uh, pandemic that was in the 1980s and 1990s. And I think it's disproportionately affected the LGBT community in that way. Um, and when all of a sudden, you know, you pack something away in a box and you have arrested grief and you have disenfranchised grief and you've kind of put it away and like, this will never happen again. I lived through this, I lost and I loved. And then all of a sudden it, there's this huge resurgence based on situational environmental stressors and triggers that happened during COVID. Uh, I think a lot of people just didn't know what to do or where to turn. So if you've noticed our relapse rates, our overdose rates have skyrocketed. I think in 2018, we were about at 80,000 people in 2018 died of a drug overdose. Now in 2020 and 2021, we're upwards of 100,000 people. And that is not just from the opioid yeah. crisis, right? Like the opioid crisis accounted for 75,000 of those deaths, but we have an undocumented 25,000 drug-related deaths as a result of the pandemic. And I have uh, definitely seen disparaging numbers in the LGBT community. And I truly believe it's a result of unprocessed, unresolved grief and trauma related directly to the first pandemic. You know, I never thought of it exactly like this, but I, I wanna share this. So I came into my sexual identity mm -hmm. in, in the 80s and it was a pretty scary time to say the least. And at the time, how can I put this? You know, I, I think that there was um, a, a need to be in denial to some extent and to push things down. And I was very, very safe. I was, I was terrified, yeah. so I was super safe. Um, but at the same time, there was so much emotionally pushed down and, and there's a lot of writing nowadays about intergenerational mm -hmm. trauma. And usually we talk about it in families, right? That, that it gets passed down by the generation. But this is another example that you're, you're sharing now, that idea of intergenerational trauma from what happened back then uh, to what still lingers in really in the DNA, you know, based on the magnitude of, of loss at that time. Yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, also being, you know, handed down in DNA where, I mean, it, it saddens me to say this, but there is an entire generation of older queer folks that are missing. The sages and the mentors that would be here today to talk about the story of what it is and what we fought for. And, you know, <laughs> talking about organizations like ACT UP and Stonewall, like we're missing this oral tradition in our community as a result of the first pandemic. And I think there are a, a lot of lost 
folks out there just trying to find their way in the gay community and in the LGBT community without some direction as a result of the first pandemic. Yeah, I almost want to take a moment because it's it's just so big and so, you know, so much to, to integrate, okay. yeah. I appreciate your perspective and I appreciate your um, wisdom around how that affects uh, mm -hmm. folks today, right? On, on conscious and, and very mm -hmm. unconscious levels. I, I, was, uh, I was watching PBS because I'm kind of a nerd in that way. And, <laughs> and I, I came across the story about Mike Smith, who was one of the co-founders of the AIDS Memorial Club. And it was truly inspiring because it's, I mean, it's the largest living art piece in the world and it still continues on. Mm. And it was a way for us to come together as a community and kind of process our grief and also help families who maybe couldn't talk about it then process their grief now. So um, uh, Mike Smith um, has a factory warehouse in San Francisco where the AIDS quilt is still manufactured and there are still panels being made. But during COVID, they had to shut down. They had to send everyone home and they're like, I'm really sorry. Like we're on kind of lockdown isolation, but in, in true activist forum and in true creativity, what they started doing in the warehouse that uh, makes the AIDS quilt is they started making masks and they took all the panels oh. that would go on the back of the quilt and they started oh. making masks for underserved and underprivileged uh, community organizations. And it was just mm. another way uh, seeing how much grief and loss can be transmuted into creativity and, you know, responsibility. And I just, I really mm -hmm. love that story, how they just kind of, you know, we're going to have to shut down, but a couple of us are going to go in and we're going to do the best that we can to contribute to the solution and not just live in the mm -hmm. problem. And I, I have mm -hmm. seen that time and time again, especially in my rainbow population. So. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Well, talk about an, a, a huge example of love. Right. That, that's great. In sexual recovery, so somebody is in long-term recovery, let's say, can, can they use apps or, or possibly have casual sex again? So I'm going to go back to safe, sane, and consensual, right? Someone in long-term recovery. Yes. I think that it is delicate and fragile in the way that someone might use an app. I think that there has to be a lot of boundaries around app usage. Um, what am I moving towards? Is this a safe person for me? Um, are, is this consensual? Are there drugs? Are there, is there alcohol? Really asking some very pointed questions before meeting up with somebody. Uh -huh. And I think the help of a sponsor or a mentor or a therapist can really help someone uh, define what that outline will look like. That is a very subjective experience. So, you know, having all hands on deck if you're going to use an app in long-term recovery. Um, yes, I think a person can have se casual sex. Absolutely. Again, it, it, if you're in alignment with your sexual values and your principles and you're, you're leading from authenticity and you just want to go have a casual encounter, absolutely. I think that that is something that will be available to you in sexual recovery. Um, if you notice like the, 
the sensationalism start to come up, I might pull back and I might push a pause on it because that might mean that I'm leading from intensity. But if there's no impulsive action behind it and you don't find yourself seeking relief through a casual encounter, absolutely, I think that that will be available. Probably not in the first couple of years, but, Mm -hmm. you know, moving forward in your sexual recovery, you know, looking at those bottom line behaviors and gray areas, um, you know, investigating and exploring and being very thorough internally and externally about your motivations and intentions. Sure. And along the same lines, what what about porn? Can someone watch porn in long-term recovery? When people are reintroducing porn, Mm -hmm. I find it very useful to set aside a self-sex date. Like if that's something you want to try and bring in and start to incorporate in your sexual recovery plan, great. Tuesdays at 3.30, I have a date with myself to watch some porn and I have, it's bookended. I have someone on the back end and I have someone on the front end Mm. of this experience of me watching porn Mm -hmm. and just being very mindful and self-aware of what might come up during that time. Right. And so you have kind of a safety plan. And as you walk through your safety plan, if you, if you find that it doesn't lead towards unhealthy or impulsive action, sure. Absolutely. That can be a part of your sexual recovery plan. Mm-hmm. Great. I just want to reiterate that it, it sounds like it's very individual. Number one, it's very mm-hmm. subjective, mm-hmm. but if it's something that is being shared with others, for instance, with a sponsor, with a, a counselor, um, so that it's not perpetuating secrecy and shame mm-hmm. that, that, that it's really, some trial and error possibly to figure out where that zone is that feels safe enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely going to take a few Tuesdays at three 30 to, to find out where I feel internally, externally safe. And, you know, what are my comfort levels around it? Like mm-hmm. what type of porn am I viewing? I mean, if you're someone who engages in chem sex and you're viewing using porn, that's a big, that's a hard no on my end. But yeah, it, it, yeah. if you're someone that, rarely watched porn and just sacked it out, then you're going to, you're going to find your place with that. And if there was one thing, Mel, that, that you'd like our listeners to take away from our conversation today, I know there's a lot of things, but if there is one thing that rises to the top, what, what would that be? Maybe to know and understand that a lot of the ways in which we act are forms of self-soothing and we're just moving towards pleasure um, in an avoidance of maybe some very painful experiences in our lives. And I would really want people to explore their trauma profiles because I think when I have the information about how this is a nervous system response and not a moral failing, Mm -hmm. it takes away and alleviates a lot of the shame and secrecy behind it. And, you know, circling back to sex positivity, I want for folks to have a beautiful human experience and embrace and express themselves sexually in whatever way feels good for them. Mm -hmm. Now, if it's shrouded in secrecy or shame or fear, Mm -hmm. I'm not expressing myself to my full capacity in that experience. Mm -hmm. So really checking in and getting support and beginning to 
understand, you know, how trauma, isolation, depression, anxiety can lead to impulsive or compulsive behaviors because it isn't about sex. It's about my response to discomfort Mm -hmm. and learning how to respond to themselves internally in a way that's kind, gentle, and compassionate. Mm. On that note, I really, really appreciate you joining us today. This has been terrific. It's been informative and and I love your last words. I mean, you you have a, a, a way of describing things and a way of bringing a message to our audience and lots of people, I'm sure, that is kind and compassionate. So I really, really appreciate that, Mel. Yeah, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity today. I really appreciate the invitation. My pleasure. You take good care. Thank you for listening today. It was so helpful to share this time with my talented colleague, Mel McCracken, and discussing this really unusual topic that sometimes falls under the radar. If you're so inclined, please give us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe and share my podcast with those who may benefit. I look forward to you joining us the next time and don't forget to stay connected. Mm -hmm.